Hey folks, it's Adam Summer. This show's a little bit different for this Monday. I was traveling, so Rachel and Sean took the week off. I have a conversation for you with Public Rights Project. They're a group that does a lot of good work uh, and are very focused on helping government be its best version of what it can be to help people actually solve problems. They also filed an amicus brief on the 14th Amendment case for Donald Trump in the United States Supreme Court, arguing that uh, the 14th Amendment should apply, that uh, Donald Trump should be kept off the ballot. And they do a lot of very important work that you might not notice because they're doing it with more local government-type entities. Uh, But it's very important work, and it's the kind of work that I think everybody needs to know more about. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the Public Rights Project and uh, their Representative, we go into all that with the introduction and everything on the interview itself. Thanks for stopping by. Make sure to check us out at theheartlandcollective.com. Get signed up today. Share this show with somebody that you know. And we'll see you all next week with a regular episode on a regular Monday recording. Welcome back to Let's Have a Chat here on the Heartland Pod. I've got with me Jonathan Miller. He's the Chief Program Officer with Public Rights Project, which you can find uh, them at publicrightsproject.org. They're easy to find online. Jonathan, thanks for taking the time to sit with me on this Monday, uh, I guess, afternoon where you are. but still a little bit morning where I am. Thanks for joining me on the Heartland Pod. How are you doing? Adam, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here and great to connect. And and to all the Chiefs fans out there, congratulations on the Super Bowl victory. I know it's an exciting day uh, in in the Kansas City area, Missouri, especially. Yeah, very much appreciated. And you said you're you're in the Boston area, so I guess I guess we can call you for advice on how to handle this feeling of uh, everybody hates us, but it's a pretty darn good day. <laughs> just enjoy the ride enjoy the ride enjoy the adventure it's all i can say because it's uh yeah it's an amazing thing to watch kind of greatness unfold and that reed mahomes combination is incredible they're incredible they're just yeah, incredible it's, it's it's pretty wild so chief program officer with public rights project um, you guys have a vision statement that i think is a, a handy place to kind of start this conversation says, so we close the gap between the promise of our laws and the lived reality of marginalized communities, we work hand-in-hand with local, state, and tribal governments across the U.S. to equitably enforce laws that protect people's civil and human rights. So the, the question that I throw to you there is, that's the mission statement. I think people can take it for what it is. It's, it's simply stated, and I think very direct. But can you help us understand First of all, why the focus on entities, states, cities, tribal governments? Because that, I think, is certainly different from what people are used to seeing with a group. You know, you know, I think it's reasonable to compare a public rights project to, say, an ACLU type setting as far as what some of the function is. So why the difference in those things? So. Public Rights Project, as you mentioned, works with government partners uh, around the country, including Kansas City Mayor Quinn Lucas quite frequently. And what we believe is that there's a lot of untapped potential, particularly local and tribal and also state level, for governments to be rights protectors, 
to stand up for consumers uh, who've been ripped off or workers who have been, you know, suffered from wage theft, um, voters whose rights are abridged, and, you know, many other kind of manifestations of this. And mm-hmm. we need government at at all levels to to be champions of rights. Um, I come out of the state attorney general world. I worked in the Massachusetts Attorney General's office for about eleven years, um, and in an office that really has a, a long tradition of doing what's called public protection work. And right. what that means is bringing cases on behalf of the community to ensure that you know consumers who are losing their homes to foreclosure because of predatory loans have somebody who's championing you know them or when uh same-sex couples are being discriminated against uh they're married but the federal government says they're not uh bringing a case to to support and protect their rights so so coming out of that tradition of state AGs and really wanting to bring that ethos and ethic um to local governments as well. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, one thing that I think gets lost in the shuffle of, you know, these lawsuits is that somebody's got to still pay their bills that's doing that job for a living most of the time. And so there has to be a mechanism because these are not money, right? I'm a lawyer by trade. You're a lawyer by trade. There's a big difference between the private practice and the money that you can make, you know, maintaining a legal practice. That's what I do, you know, in my day-to-day job and taking on cases that are public interest cases, because oftentimes those cases don't come with paydays. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, there are just a lot of barriers for ordinary people to have their rights protected. There are arbitration agreements that make it very hard to get into court. There are, um, I think, as you mentioned, economic incentives that make it very difficult for lawyers to be willing to take cases, right? They may not get paid. They may not get their fees covered. And then, you know, certainly the rules of the courts can make it very hard. Uh, It can be hard to gather evidence and information at the beginning of the case, right? And so you get the case gets dismissed right away. But what these, you know, government actors can do is they can gather information ahead of time. They can request it um, and then bring the case. And I think that, that that collective effort is really valuable for vindication. It's also just really symbolically powerful to know that government is on your side. And we need more government to be fighting for people's rights, not trying to, you know, stomp on them. It's interesting you use that word, uh, the, the collective, because that's, you know, that's how we style our, our website. Uh, we talk a lot about the need for collective action. How important have you found that in terms of, you know, power dynamics um, and, you know, that the, the collective nature versus the, the sort of individual person standing alone, you know, sort of tilting at windmills? I think that's a huge part of our work, and I think it shows up in a couple of different ways. So one is obviously government actors are, you know, just differently situated than individuals, right? right. They... Uh, they're the government. They have, you know, government leaders like mayors or district attorneys have actual power. And then they have the bully pulpit. They have the ability to draw attention to issues uh, through social media, through press conferences and other ways. And then what we also try to do is to bring those governments together to 
be participating in what, what I would call collective action, right? That could be getting dozens of governments to join a brief in support of a position. Here's why we're impacted by restricting access to abortion um, care, or here's why canceling student debt is so meaningful to our members of our community. Um, and that we think that, that those collective voices, not just with the individual community and government, but those governments together in you know different places in the country with different political uh, ideologies are so important um, for bringing together. And you know, I think it, there's also some courage in the collective as well. You can bring more yeah. people along when you've got some initial leaders who are willing to stand up in that fight. So right now, as you're looking at 2024, uh, we're in an election season. Is it fair to say that? Uh, fair and free elections and voting rights access, that those are at the top of the mind right now at a place like the Public Rights Project? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, our, our democracy is under threat right now. We have a very fragile democracy and the variability of our elections to sort of run and be administered is under is under threat. Um, you know, what people may not really realize, especially we've got you know, federal election, you got a presidential election, but even those elections are run very much at the local level, right? The county or city level, uh, all the way up through the states and to the national level. And the ability of local election officials to do their jobs because they're being harassed right now, they're being threatened with violence. There's been so much turnover uh, by local clerks in the last several years since the 2020 election. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just a very challenging landscape, you know, and I think there's growing concerns about misinformation, the way that artificial intelligence may be used to create more believable misinformation. Uh, we saw that in New Hampshire just in the in the primary a few weeks ago. Um, it's just really hard for these local officials who are, I think, really noble public servants. They just want people to be able to vote and they want people to believe in election results. Uh, to do their jobs. And so at Public Rights Project, we're really focused on supporting uh, county clerks and others who are part of the administration of the elections to be able to do their jobs and to do it in a way that's free from harassment or threats of violence, that they're able to get their message out about, you know, just how voting works or yeah. how ballots are counted so that there's more trust uh, in election administration. And, um, yeah. you know, I think also importantly to make sure that local officials have the freedom and the wiggle room to, you know, to implement things that make sense for their communities, right? It doesn't right. make sense for every county that is different sized to administer an election exactly the same way, right? You might want to set up different types of polling locations or, you know, drop boxes or things like that that make it easier in an urban area versus a rural area, um, yeah, to to vote. So you know, those are the types of things that are front of mind for us right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I imagine people might be surprised. Um, you know, it's easy to look at partisanship when it comes to these things and go, "It's a Republican this, it's a Democrat that." 
But when you're dealing with, you know, county clerk is a perfect example. When you're dealing with these folks, you know, it's elected position. A lot of times those people are running on a partisan platform. They're part of a party or they're, you know, they're their local county party or whatever. But I imagine you find yourself dealing with uh, clerks from all walks of the political spectrum. And at the end of the day, the vast majority, if not all that you deal with, their goal is to do just what you're talking about, is to make sure that the election is done, that it's performed appropriately, that it's done within the rules, but also that it's done in a way that gives access and just lets people have confidence in the results of their elections. That's absolutely right. And, you know, I think if you spend time with election officials in Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Georgia, you know, you name it, you're going to hear very similar concerns uh, and very similar perspectives about, about doing their jobs. And they also know their communities really well. And I think that that's an, a, another just really important piece of this is uh, their ability to get direct information to their communities so that there's greater trust uh, in the process and so that they can serve, you know, the, the needs. I mean, you're, you know, take Texas, for example, you know, there are hundreds of counties, one of which is Harris County, which has got, uh -huh. you know, more than a million voters. It's got more voters than like 23 states. And there's some right. counties in Texas that have hundreds of voters. And so, you know, I, I think it makes sense for an administrator in, in Harris County to, to be able to do things maybe a little bit differently than in a county that only has a couple hundred voters. But that right. but that administrator in, in, you know, in the in the very rural county may need to do different things than in Harris County to be able to reach voters because of geography and things like that. And so, you know, our, our, we're really focused on enabling these officials that are, you know, really true public servants to be able to do their work and to do it um, effectively. So we, we talk quite a bit about voting rights on our shows um, and, you know, how fundamental of an issue it is that, you know, we can talk about, you know, whatever issue you want to talk about, that at the end of the day, they're all going to tie back to ballot access and voting rights outside of lawsuits. Obviously, that's a, a part of, of the job there at uh, the PRP. But outside of that, is there other stuff that Public Rights Project is doing? Is there educational tools? Are there things just to help people understand the connection to voting rights and its importance as that base level. Hey there, friends. It's me, Jess Piper. Have you checked out theheartlandcollective.com yet? Well, what are you waiting for? Visit theheartlandcollective.com today and sign up. Your support of $5 a month supports this show, my show, and all the content in the Heartland Collective universe. Join today and help us change the conversation. So a lot of our work is through partnership. We're working with community-based organizations that are really deeply embedded um, in the communities to, you know, empower voters to understand their rights. Um, so, you know, we're not necessarily doing it directly, but we're doing it in partnership with others. We're, you know, we're a national organization. We're working in about 12 states focused specifically on the on the election. And we and we we do it in partnership with the local officials as well as uh, community-based organizations. The other thing that we do is we do training for government lawyers, and and part of the purpose there is actually just to get them to think differently about their jobs. A lot a lot of government lawyers um, 
you know, they, they defend government. That's, that's most of what they do. You know, the government gets sued and they're the lawyer in defense. And we're really trying to change the mindset to be thinking proactively, right? We were talking about the sort of rights protection piece, but that that's not just about, you know, mayors and district attorneys and other leaders uh, doing different things. It's also about getting the lawyers within these offices to think differently about, about their work and have a different mindset. And so that certainly connects to our voting rights agenda as well. Can you talk a little bit more? I, th- I think that that seems to fall under your affirmative leaders fellowship program. Can you kind of unpack that and help us understand what that is? Absolutely. So the affirmative leaders fellowship is a, you know, a cohort based program. It's like a professional development uh, group of lawyers, government lawyers from around the country. They apply um, in the early spring and then they join us for about six months of programming. We do most of it virtually. We try to get together once as a group and they go through, you know, a curriculum. It's a, it's a leadership development course where they learn about how to generate ideas. They learn from advocates who are doing work in workers' rights, consumer protection, uh, voting rights in other areas so that they, they can make connections in those, those spaces. Uh, they learn about different tools in the advocacy toolkit, right? Litigation mm-hmm. is one of those tools, but there are other ways to effectuate change through community outreach and connection mm-hmm. by writing friend of the court briefs, by commenting on public policy at the federal level or the state level. So we also try to instill in them thinking creatively about the various tools that they have in front of them, both the sort of, you know, direct power and authority of their offices, maybe in litigation and enforcement of the laws, Uh but also other ways that they can try to influence change. And, you know, we've found that that lawyers in that program you know, it's pretty transformative for them. They are some of our most active partners in our network. And many of them also go on to leadership roles or other roles in government uh, where they can wield, you know, that influence to do the rights protection. So you mentioned part of what winds up happening there is friend of the court briefs or the, the amicus uh, that gets filed. Uh, did you all file one in the uh, ballot access case, the 14th Amendment case? We did. We we actually worked in that case with four historians, experts on the Civil War and Reconstruction to file a brief to provide the U.S. Supreme Court with, uh, I think, some very important information about the original meaning and understanding of Can you just unpack the amendment. gist of that for us to understand what that argument is? Because I, I think yeah, we've absolutely. talked about the, the case, some and the argument, some. I did kind of a live tweet thread. I, I was able to watch the arguments. Um, and I think, you know, we can talk about and prognosticate what we think the court's going to do. But I think just understanding what the historical argument is, is, is a nice piece of context. Yeah. So the brief does a couple of things. It talks about some prior history of excluding uh, people who've been engaging in rebellion from holding office. For example, in the late 18th century, people who participated in the Shays Rebellion, uh, Uh an uprising in Western Massachusetts, uh, were excluded from participating in in, um, 
or from holding office uh, for a period of time, kind of as, as precedent. And then there was a lot of work that the federal government did directly during the Civil War to ensure that people who were loyal to the Union were in positions um, in, in the federal government. So offering kind of that, that precedent, some of those examples for what came before Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And then, and then the brief really just talks about the debates and discussion within Congress, right? Because it was Congress that first passed the 14th Amendment um, yeah. about what was motivating them. And, uh, you know, the real concern that people who were in the Confederacy were going to return to Congress. In fact, a few right. of them thought to be seated uh, in Congress in 1865, immediately after the Civil War, had right. ended. And so that was a real concern. But that the discussions went beyond just the Confederacy. And there was worry about, you know, those who rebelled against the federal government uh, returning uh -huh. to power into the future. And so the brief discusses that that debate and sort of why Section 3 doesn't just apply to ex-Confederates, but applies to modern times as well. And it's then the last because... part of the brief... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, I was, yeah, just one other part. The last part of the brief talks about then what happened after the 14th Amendment, immediately after it was uh, ratified, and in particular, the trial of Jefferson Davis, and, and how in the trial of Jefferson Davis, one of the arguments that was put out there was the fact that Section 3 had already punished him. He couldn't uh, serve in office because it was a self-executing, right? It didn't require legislation. He just was immediately disqualified. And so, so this idea they, that his automatic that, preclusion is enough, we don't need to punish this man further because he's whatever career he had is over, therefore call it a day. Exactly. Yes, that was part of the argument that was made for why his wow. treason trial shouldn't go, go forward. Um, and so those, I think, three parts together demonstrate that Congress knew what it was doing, that it was intentionally excluding anybody who had engaged in rebellion, not just in the Confederacy, but into the future, and that there was no need for legislation to implement it. It, it was, a, as, as I said, self-executing. It would take care of itself. And if you were disqualified, you were disqualified. And so we, uh, on behalf of these historians, filed the brief. And, you know, I just, I mean, credit where credit is due. Uh, Jill Lepore, who's a historian at Harvard, and David Blight, historian at Yale, were really the kind of leaders of this of this brief. And, and Jill Lepore did a lot of the writing. It's, you know, her, she's a brilliant historian. And uh, they just waded into a ton of, you know, primary sources uh, to to lift out, I think, the clear and definitive history about the original meaning of Section 3. Sounds like it would make a great uh, a great release <laughs> as a book as well, as a, as a history book based on that. Uh, it, it, it is funny, the, you know, this argument, because, you know, I, again, I watched the arguments, I'm guessing that you did too, and it's hard to ignore that the, the tenor of the questions and responses from the justices certainly felt like uh, they were leaning toward, uh, you know, a, a allowing Trump to be on the ballot in Colorado and overruling that case. We, you know, we don't know. Could, could go either way. Um, but even with that, I couldn't help but think about people like, you know, here in Missouri, Senator Josh Hawley and the way that you talk about 
the historical application of the 14th Amendment and, you know, these people who were immediately reseated, right? We have a, a guy who, you know, infamously goes out and does the fist pump and is one of the people objecting to the electors and pushing this, what we now know was an intentionally fake slate of electors from some of these states where people have been convicted, right? It's not just that people, you know, made a mistake. There were people convicted for vast plots and conspiracies to create fake slates of electors that were being pushed by these elected officials and senators with the 14th Amendment. I mean, has there been any discussion that is worth talking about on that? Is, you know, connected to somebody like Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, um, you know, pe people along those lines? Well, there have been some pre, you know, sort of cursor cases to the effort to remove former President Trump from the ballot. The, 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 the group that brought the case, Crew, um, you know, had some litigation previously in New Mexico to exclude a county commissioner who was involved in the the events around J January 6th. So it, you know, it it it's it's percolated in a few different ways. I I think, you know, maybe more broadly the point is that there are serious threats to democracy right now. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the peaceful transfer of power, the acceptance of election results, right, and the fomenting of violence. Uh, is, you know, is a huge issue. And it sort of gets to the points we were talking earlier, just about people being able to administer elections, right? And sort of w where we are right now, we're, we're at a place where it's, it's literally dangerous for people to do their jobs of administering yeah. elections. And so that's, you know, that's a scary and serious thing. And, you know, this case, you know, appreciate it's very controversial. And I think people have you know, correctly, so very different views about yeah. it and how it should come out. But I think it's also important to recognize it as a mechanism for saving democracy. And, you know, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to create some guardrails to ensure that people aren't elected who are going to subvert the democracy. And, yeah. I, you know, a reason why public rights projects got involved in this case is because, you know, democracy, you know, can't defend itself. It needs to be mm -hmm. protected. It needs to be safeguarded. And given the moment that we're in and the challenges that, you know, members of our network face to just do their very job, it's really critical, I think, to stand up and protect, um, you know, the ability of our institutions to do their critical work. So on your website, I see if I'm a lawyer, I am, uh, if we have listeners and we do have plenty of professional listeners. So uh, you have collaboration and pro bono opportunities there. There's also a donate button at publicrightsproject.org. Um, how else can people help? Are those the best two ways? Are there other ways to help an effort like this? Well, we love to hear from people. Uh, they can reach out to us through the website. We certainly are going to be looking for pro bono partners for doing work in the election space. And uh, yeah, if anybody's willing to to uh, we're, we're, we're a nonprofit, and anybody's willing to to make a donation, we, we're, we're happy to accept it. It helps us uh, fulfill our mission of supporting rights protection. So looking at 2024, um, how important do you think getting this one right is going to be in terms of process and cleanliness and and future trust and all of those things. How important do you see the 2024 election? Well, it's obviously a cliche, 
to say this is the most important election of our lifetime. That's what sure. everyone says about every election. But it's hard not to see how this, you know, is is anything but an inflection point for mm -hmm. uh, democracy. And there, you know, there's a real uh, rift in this country, I think, right now about whether we're going to follow the Constitution and follow our institutions or just sort of let power for power's sake take over. And, you know, we're our group is in the democracy building um, game. And, and, and that's another reason why we really focus on local actors, because we, we really think it's important to build democracy from the bottom up, right? Local governments are closest to the people. They're responsive to the people. They can be very innovative. Um, and it's also, I think, the thing that people can feel some real trust in, right? Some of these bigger institutions, you know, we know how people feel about Congress and the Supreme Court right now, but we need people to continue to believe in government and representative government. And yeah. that's why I think local local government is a critical, you know, kind of component of that. If you can see, you know, your, your vote mattering and influencing outcomes and resulting in, you know, changes in terms of, yeah, you know, your economic outlook, your rights as a as a worker, um, it can be really meaningful for your, you know, sort of belief in democracy. And so I think just acting at the, at, you know, really being focused on those local actors uh, is really critical uh, to the work right now. It seems like at the at the core of it, at the and certainly the, the core of what uh, Public Rights Project does and as a, as a nonprofit, is also helping us all kind of take that step back and recognize that free and fair elections and, and appropriate democratic functioning of these institutions uh, was at one point in time a, a obvious nonpartisan issue and that it would be great to help it remain a nonpartisan issue because it shouldn't matter what the letter is next to your name. Uh, we have to start from a place of, uh, of the, the institutions and systems working appropriately, openly, and effectively for everybody, regardless of where they're coming from or what they're trying to do or what their end goals are. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I could say it better than that. That's that's exactly right. Voting rights, free and fair elections, those should be nonpartisan issues. That should be, that should be sort of sacred and hallowed ground that we can all agree on uh, as sort of cornerstones for, for our democracy. Yeah kind of really the foundation that we that we build off of. And, you know, your partisan leadings, you know, you're going to win some elections, you're going to lose some elections, but we need that kind of common understanding of how this all works and how we all function together. Um, or otherwise, it's very hard for democracy to function. And yeah. I just think it's really important for everybody to understand how precarious, uh, you know, things are right now. And it's really going to take all of us um, standing up for the for the institutions for us to kind of get get out of uh, out of this moment and hopefully you know into a, a different place with with a stronger democracy and, and more inclusive one in the future. Absolutely, well, very well said, Jonathan Miller with the Public Rights Project. Check them out at publicrightsproject. Dot org. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time. And I look forward, we got to do this again. I, I think this is a, 
in uh, a, a relationship that can expand. So I appreciate your time and talking with us here on the Heartland Pod. Thanks so much, Adam. Uh, really grateful for the time. Would love to come back anytime you want me. Pod is a production of MidMap Media LLC. Producers Adam Summer, Rachel Parker, and Sean Diller. Outro song by American Aquarium, written by BJ Barnum, called The World is on Fire. Learn more about the Heartland Pod at heartlandpod.com. Learn more about American Aquarium at americanaquarium.com. That's when I saw a tear fall from her eyes She said, what are we gonna do? What's this world coming to? For the first time in my whole life I stood there speechless
coming in too But she'll have my fight She'll have her mama's fire If anyone builds a wall in her journey Baby, bust right through Okay.